Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. One year ago, on February 24, 2022, Russia started a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, escalating a territorial conflict that has been simmering since the occupation of Crimea and the Donbas region in 2014. The Kremlin's aims of a swift occupation of Ukraine did not materialize, and after 12 months of aerial bombardments, civilian suffering and trench warfare, Ukraine is still defending its country and the West is still keeping up sanctions and support for Ukraine. Today, we'll look at China's role in the conflict and the conflict's impact on China's global standing and agency. My name is Johannes Hellayon, and to discuss this issue, I'm joined by Helena Legada, lead analyst at Merricks, and... Jakub Jakubowski, Deputy Director of the Center of Eastern Studies in Warsaw. Helena and Jakub, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, hello. I'm especially happy to be joined by the two of you, as it was exactly one year ago on February 23rd that we talked about the situation developing in Ukraine. And to save our dear listeners the time, uh, at that time we did not see a full-scale invasion of Ukraine as very likely although it was even hours before it happened. This may illustrate how much of a shift the Kremlin's decision to, to invade Ukraine was. China's close relationship with Russia also has dragged it into the wider discussion of the conflict uh, since then, like its role as a peace negotiator or weapons provider for Russia, but we will get to that later in the podcast. Let us start maybe with a basic question. What is China's position regarding the war in Ukraine now, and how has it changed since February 2022? Uh, Helena, I would give that to you. Thanks, Johannes. I mean, the first thing that has to be said on this is that China's position has been remarkably consistent over the last 12 months. The key principles of, of China's response, the calls for a peaceful resolution of the conflict, that calls for all countries' sovereignty and legitimate security concerns to be respected, those have been there since the beginning. But so has China's criticism of the United States and NATO for triggering the conflict, for hyping up the tensions, and for keeping the conflict going. I think fundamentally, what we've seen over the past 12 months is that China's position that was described at the beginning of the of the invasion last year as one of pro-Russian neutrality, has proven to be not so neutral after all. As we've seen over the past few days with Wang Yi and his speech at the Munich Security Conference, or from the readouts of his meetings in Moscow, including with President Putin, China has very much taken Moscow's side in this conflict. Uh, and that hasn't changed very dramatically at all. I think for China's leadership, the issue here is that this is bigger than just about Ukraine or the future of Ukraine. China's position and China's response plays into much larger questions about China's geopolitical competition with the US and how Beijing may want to position itself vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. and the West at large going forward and how it can best pursue its own geopolitical interests and strategic ambitions. And those call for China to maintain cooperation with Russia. 
Yeah, I'll quickly jump in, just not arguing for Lena, with, uh, which I agree with, but just adding some more details. So indeed, I think uh, during the last year, China has consistently tried to sit on two chairs at the same time. One being that they're neutral, they're no different from India or Brazil or whoever. They're just making normal deals with Russia and there's no side in this conflict. That was a narrative uh, disseminated, especially in Europe. I think we are the primary recipient, the primary target of it. And then the other chair being directed at Russia, but also the global south, where China was consistently saying, just as Helena said, that it's all America's fault, NATO's fault. This is just another American imperial war. That's a result of a push into legitimate uh, Russian sphere of influence. It didn't work out, I think, at least in Europe. I would say that it didn't work out. And most of the policymakers and expert community sense that, that something's not working here, that on, on Monday, China is saying that they're neutral and they respect everyone's sovereignty. And then on Tuesday, they just bash Europe, bash NATO and the US and call us the instigators of war, criticizing sanctions, criticizing sending arms to Ukraine and, and so on. I was talking about narratives. I, I firmly believe that at least Xi Jinping's vision and his, I mean, the, the, the elite's vision is much more closer to the, the second kind of chair. That is, I think they generally believe that it was a war instigated by the U.S. I think they're looking at the conflict through the lens of their own conflict with the U.S. and the Indo-Pacific. And they said it numerous times. They see, although they don't like direct comparisons between Taiwan and Ukraine because they say one is a country and the other is not. But still the momentum in their eyes, I think, is very similar. It is the U.S. that is pushing to try to crush both Russia and China. And so they feel obliged to help. They see a strategic interest there. The last remark maybe would be that I can see a slight change uh, in China's approach, I think the late 2022, and it's happening just now, is that for months they were trying to withstand on this very uh, awkward position of sitting on those two chairs. It didn't work out. But I think in Bali, G20 meeting, when they started to talk about their role in nuclear de-escalation, I think they they started to send messages to the West, to Europe, saying that, yeah, maybe, in fact, we have some special relationship with Russia vis-a-vis -vis this conflict, but then we can help you. If you behave nicely, if you lift sanctions on us, then maybe we'll help you to rein in uh, Russia's imperial ambition. And I think this is uh, a, a very slight change that we're witnessing now. And the, the peace process talk is just part of this general framework. I mean, I think this this nuclear element is maybe one of the few sort of substantive changes we've seen in, in China's position. Um, I agree with Jakub's state, but I mean, the other side of, of this coin is the fact that over the last few months, we have seen Beijing signaling uh, that they would be opposed to any sort of nuclear conflict or nuclear escalation between Russia and the West. And that's very much to, on the one side is a sign or a message to the West. But I think it can also be seen as a message to Russia, uh, a bit of a warning from Beijing not to take things too far and not to bring nuclear weapons into play. That That is something that is a bit newer uh, over the past 12 months. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there are limits to this relationship, uh, despite the no limits proclamation. There are certain things that China doesn't want. I think that Russia is useful for them. And even an aggressive Russia is useful for them to a certain extent. But there's there are limits there, like um, nuclear war. I mean, uh, or even normalizing the use of tactical nuclear weapons to to force political concessions. This is not the kind of a world that China would like to see, as they have a lot of nuclear uh, capable countries uh, encircling them, or or ones that could potentially uh, possess those weapons. We'll come to the um, China's role as a peacemaker and internationally uh, a bit later, but let me first pick up another issue that Jakob mentioned a bit ago, uh, namely sanctions. One feature of this conflict has been that the European Union and its allies have reacted fairly unitedly in, in many steps they have taken towards Russia, towards this conflict. One of them has been uh, the issuing of a whole range of sanctions on Russia and on issues related to the war. Maybe, Jakob, could you give us a general idea of what the, the current sanctions are like? And would you say that China has adhered to them? First of all, I, w what I need to, to say about economic sanctions is is that uh, the fundament is, is the following. Economic cooperation is not the most important pillar of China-Russia relationship. There are much more important things there, strategic, ideological, security. Maybe energy is important, but as for the rest, investments and technologies, it is not. And it, it's not a bug. It's a feature of this relationship because Russia didn't want to be too dependent on China. China doesn't see Russia's particularly, you know, attractive market because it's so small compared to the rest of the world that it's, I think it sets an important background here. Because as the West, G7, EU, um, most importantly, the US imposed the sanctions, is including the secondary sanctions, I think for many Chinese companies, the decision was very easy to make. It was either staying on the Russian market or being deprived of access to the rest of the world. And I think it was very clear that they, they chose the rest of the world. I'm not sure if Russia is dissatisfied with this one. There are, as I said, other much more important pillars there. But I think so far we were talking about complying with Western sanctions. And here we saw a lot of compliance and a lot of trying to take over the Russian market when the European or American companies left. But now we are talking about, and this is the, the hot topic now, one year into the war, about another type of sanctions, which is potential sanctions for China's help to the Russians. And uh, we saw uh, a couple of Chinese companies being sanctioned, uh, like within the Wagner Group sanction package that the US has imposed, but it's still not a big deal yet. But it's becoming to be important, direct sanctions that are to punish China for helping Russia. And this is a much bigger issue, I think. I quite agree. Um, I mean, when we talk about China and, and sanctions, I mean, as, as Jakub said, yes, Chinese companies have to a certain extent followed Western sanctions on Russia as a way to preserve their, their economic ties with, with Europe and the U.S. and the rest of the world. 
Also important to note, however, is that China hasn't imposed any sanctions of its own on Russia and that China absolutely opposes what they call unilateral sanctions by Western countries. And they've been extremely vocal about this. So, yes, a decision by Chinese firms to abide by Western sanctions to avoid being exposed to the risk of secondary sanctions uh, that would hurt their, their own business and their, and their bottom line. But the government hasn't imposed it. So you look, for example, at, at figures in terms of, say, imports of Russian oil or gas ever since the, the start of the invasion of the war 12 months ago. And China is the top importer by far. Uh, of both gas and oil. And it's also taken advantage of the fact that Russia was selling its oil and its gas at discounted prices uh, because, you know, it couldn't export to to Western countries. So, yes, Chinese companies did follow Western sanctions, but this doesn't mean that China stopped its economic relationship with Russia, especially in the energy sector. But I think it's a very important point, the one that Jakob made about the new type of sanctions that are being discussed at the moment, right? So potential sanctions on Chinese companies for supporting Russia's war against Ukraine or the general war effort. And we've already seen some moves by the U.S. in, the, in this front. I believe it was in, in June last year that the U.S. Department of Commerce added Five, I believe it was Chinese firms to the entity list because uh, they supported Russia's um, invasion effectively by providing dual use equipment or, or technology to, to Russian firms. And there are still been some reports in the media recently about how customs data shows that Chinese firms, some of them state owned, are supplying sanctioned Russian defense firms with, again, dual-use technology and equipment uh, that is being used for military purposes. I think these reports spoke of uh, drone components uh, and navigation systems, some of them shipped to Russia via third countries. So they're finding ways around the sanctions to continue supporting Russia, even if it's in a in a limited fashion. I think it's important to note that this is still going on as as far as we can tell. Yeah, this is an important note. I mean, well, when I was talking about abiding sanctions, these were official decisions uh, communicated worldwide. But during the, 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 the year, the issue of sanctions circumventions is a big issue. It's actually going beyond China itself. If we look at Russia's trade data or mirroring data, we see China and Turkey as two primary hubs through which the Russian trade is being funneled. And we have very limited knowledge of what's going on there. We we see big aggregate numbers. And occasionally, as Helen has mentioned, some uh, in detail intel popping up on uh, special on the Russian customs data that indicate that indeed sanctions circumvention is, is, is there and it's happening. Uh, and this is basically linking the, the first round of sanctions with the second round of sanctions, because the second round the, the sanctions punishing China for circumventing sanctions is what we are seeing now. You spoke of uh, China providing help to Russia and, and mentioned like uh, components and, and, and technical equipment. Uh, just recently, the U.S. has said that 
China was strongly considering providing weapons to Russia. What do you make of this assertion? Maybe I can I can get us started on this one. I mean, this is a remark made by U.S. Secretary of State Blinken at the Munich Security Conference just a few days ago. And he also noted, because I think the language is important, that they have evidence suggesting that China is strongly considering sending these sort of lethal equipment to Russia and that the evidence would maybe be out there soon enough. It is not yet. So I think publicly available evidence to this effect doesn't exist as of right now. However, my take on this, I am fairly sure that there's been plenty of consideration given in Beijing to that question. Should we or should we not send lethal equipment to Russia? Is it in our interests to take Russia's side more obviously and directly to get more directly involved in the conflict and what's the cost-benefit analysis? I think it's it's fairly normal to expect that conversation to be happening in Beijing, given China's position vis-a-vis the war and vis-a-vis Russia in general. However, I also have to say that I struggle to imagine Beijing sending high quantities of lethal equipment to Russia or bigger platforms that would make a substantial difference in the situation in Ukraine, so in in Russia's progress with its invasion. Anything can happen, of course, but this would be a very substantial U-turn in Beijing's position on the war with very serious consequences, right? So it would involve China becoming a party to the conflict effectively and taking Russia's side very directly It's a red line of the U.S. and Europe, as has been expressed, which means that this is very likely to trigger sanctions, at least from the U.S. side. The European side would discuss them. We would see if if they would manage to agree on anything. But regardless, it is a red line, right? So it could trigger sanctions. But it's also important to consider that China has also been trying to leverage its position on the war in Ukraine and the position of the US and Europe and NATO to try and expand its influence in the global south and build a bit of a coalition. And they've done that by contrasting the US, Europe and NATO, their forces for instability, they trigger this war. We, on the other hand, we're not a party to the conflict. We respect everybody's territorial integrity. We criticize NATO's um, shipments of weapons to Ukraine. It would kill that narrative. This doesn't mean that Beijing wouldn't try to frame it or justifying in a certain way. And that could easily be, well, the West is sending weapons to Ukraine. Why can't we also supply Russia? We're just doing what you're doing. But the impact, I think, would be extremely negative. I mean, this would effectively burn down quite a few of the remaining bridges with the U.S. and with Europe and with many countries across the global south. So I I struggle to see that sort of a U-turn, which doesn't mean that Beijing won't send sort of smaller quantities of equipment or try to do it sort of behind the scenes. But I don't think you'll be the sort of involvement that some are making out 
from the from Blinken's comments. Yeah, I I, I fully agree with Helena that this is uh this is they're standing in front of the Rubicon River. You know, if they crossed it, then the world will be very different. I mean, the two theaters of the emerging conflict, which I think is there, the Indo-Pacific one and the European one, will be just directly linked. Uh, with you know very very far-reaching ramifications, uh, I I I think they uh, the Chinese have stopped at the Rubicon before just before this red line, and they stopped because we've we've marked this in red. I mean the the West. I think it's pretty obvious now, at least for the U.S. and hopefully for Europe, that this is a red line that if crossed, will kind of destroy the relationships and burn the bridges, as as Helena said. If I was to speculate, I mean, what will, could kind of make China do this? When would the, they be kind of possibly deciding on, on crossing this? It will be about their own conflict with the U.S. Is that like they want to postpone it? They want to avoid it. They want to, you know, play their tricks in the Indo-Pacific and so on. But if situation in Taiwan, for example, escalated. If China got sanctioned anyways for any reason, then uh, I think you know the the punishment, the cost for supplying Russia directly, and we are talking about full weaponry systems. Yeah, just like just to divide the two, they're handing out components and tech, uh, you know, through san- sanctions or conventions. It's, it's probably happening right now, but we are talking about you know thousands of tanks of whatever Russia needs now. I think it it may happen if things went south in in, in the Pacific, which is an, another big issue of whether or not this is possible. But just the, the bottom line that I'd like to give is that to me, China's open involvement if, in, in what's happening in the European security is kind of contingent on the situation at their immediate borders. Xi Jinping went to Samarkand in September as a response to Pelosi's visit in Taiwan. And they were pretty pretty open about saying that they want to kind of show to the Chinese audiences, to the external audiences, that Russia's got their back in terms of Taiwan. So I think these two theaters are linked, but uh, so far the dynamics are different. And uh, uh, this is all hinges on the question of, of how... China's general relationship with the U.S. will look like, and if it goes bad, then maybe China could move forward with uh, direct support for Russia. I mean, just a quick sentence on that, because I think it's a very important point. I mean, the reason I think Jakub and I and, and many other analysts believe that China is very unlikely to step in right now with substantial support for Russia when it comes to, to lethal armament and sort of bigger military platforms is the fact that the cost-benefit analysis doesn't seem to work in Beijing's favor. It's not because Beijing doesn't want Russia to make progress or to win. Uh, But the moment you shift the equation of that cost-benefit analysis, then of course the decision could change in, in Beijing very drastically and quite fast. Maybe we can um, build on that in a way. Uh, China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, was at the Munich Security Conference as well and portrayed Beijing as interested in brokering a peace between Russia and Ukraine. 
also said that they were trying to do so for the past year. Due to China's close relationship with Russia, what do you make of this offer of uh, like brokering or, or like putting forth ideas for a peace treaty, keeping in mind that China is so closely aligned with Russia and, and its goals? Well, if I can start, I, I, I'll be blunt. I think it's a, a PR stunt. It's a purely diplomatic game. I mean, first of all, uh, you should ask ourselves a question. What credential and actual ability does China have to be a mediator there? And I think it's close to zero. They did not communicate directly with Kiev for a year. They have no communication channels. You know, Wang Yu met Kuleba in Munich and they took a photo and that's the closest encounter they had in a year. Uh, what kind of credibility do they have on the Western side of the conflict? Made in Ukraine, but also most probably others also will be involved, but we are talking about the coalition. The West will be willing to give Ukraine additional leverage in this talk, so it should be present there. And uh, what kind of credibility does China have? I think also close to none. This is especially visible if you compare it to countries like Turkey. Like Turkey is very specific. They, they already brokered a number of deals between Ukraine and Russia. Talk, they talk with everyone. I'm not here to praise Erdogan or whatever, just to contrast the two. You know, If I was to look for a country that has a real potential, it's certainly not, not China here. But uh, the second point I'd like to make is the the actual goals here. I think talking about this di diplomatic game, diplomatic stance, like look at la Wang Yi's last visit to Europe. It was so straightforward. They went to France, Italy and Hungary and then to Russia. Now, how does it look like? They just want to exploit those forces in Europe that are in favor of a quick peace and pro-Russian, I mean, in their thinking, in Chinese thinking, they want to exploit pro-Russian sentiments, anti-American sentiments, and drive a wedge between the, somebody call it the, the party of justice for Ukraine and the party of peace, you know? And just exploiting this, and I, I, would, uh, I would assume that this is more or less coordinated with Moscow too, because it's, it's great for Moscow. Beijing saying like, let's end this war. We are rational here talking to the, some of the Europeans, some of the global south. And the, Russia could say, look, look, the U.S. is the bad guy here. They instigate this, the, the, the conflict, they send arms, and China, this is the one that, that really cares for peace, you know. And uh, I just don't see it flying unless serious European stakeholders will jump in, which I think will be a great strategic blunder. I see it, I think, very much like Yakub's. I think this is a diplomatic move by China, and I'm quite skeptical about its chances of success. Let's see what the plan actually looks like, but simply the fact that the language and the terminology they use is, is shifting as the days goes on, I think says quite a lot, right? So what came out of the Munich Security Conference is it will be a peace proposal or a peace plan of some sort. Now, some Chinese sources are talking about a position paper on the peaceful settlement of the conflict, lowering expectations from the start. If China were to actually become involved in this and actually mediate as a neutral arbiter and an honest broker, I think it would be welcome, 
right? They will be welcomed by Europe and they will be welcomed by many other actors. It just seems extremely unlikely because of a number of reasons, right? As Jakub said, number one, China's not neutral. There's been no coordination or communication with Kiev that I that we know of, um, which necessarily means there's necessarily no, no buy-in, right, from, from the Ukrainian side. Uh, so I think that one is, uh, just, is quite... Just to add one thing, I mean, the first months of the war, Zelensky was trying so hard to get a phone call to Xi Jinping that he went to the international media numerous times and he, he, did, he got no response. Exactly. So what we've had in, in the 12 months of the war, and Jakub, let me know if, if I'm missing anything, but as far as I remember, there's been two in-person meetings between Wang Yi and the Ukrainian Foreign Minister Kuleva, one on the sidelines of the UN and one just now at the Munich Security Conference. And there was a Ponko prior to the, to the UN meeting. That's it. If you compare that to the number of Ponkos, virtual meetings and in-person meetings by Wang Yi or even Xi Jinping with Russian counterparts, there's a huge gap, right? So China is not neutral, it's not an honest broker when it comes to this conflict. Um, so how exactly would it be able to mediate? I think that would be a, a complicated, a tall task. But second, we also need to look about, we need to look into what does China call mediation and what do past Chinese peace plans or peace proposals look like? The reality is there's been quite a few. This is not the first time that Beijing puts forward a peace proposal for a conflict. China has a four-point peace plan for, for the Israel-Palestine conflict. There is, I think it's also a four-point peace, peace plan for Syria. There's been previous peace plans for the Horn of Africa and multiple other countries and, and regions around the world. So again, China putting forward one of these proposals is not new. But if you look at all these plans, what they tend to be is a reiteration of key principles of Chinese foreign policy and China's position on whichever conflict this plan is about, rather than a series of concrete actionable steps. So it's very likely that that's exactly what we're going to get. We are going to get a four or five or six point peace plan for Ukraine. And what is that likely to contain? Well, China's positions calling on all sides to stop the violence, calling on territorial integrity and sovereignty to be respected, calling on the U.S. to stop supplying weapons to Ukraine. Those sort of principles, I think, is likely what's going to be in this plan. And that doesn't solve a conflict. I mean, none of China's peace plans in the past have had any success at mediating any sort of peace between the various parties to to all the different conflicts, right? So China has no experience successfully mediating. What China calls mediation isn't actually what we would call mediation, according to best practices. China issues these plans with key grant principles. And sure, maybe they send a special envoy, maybe they host both sides in, in Beijing, but they never take it beyond that. The reality is that Beijing is incredibly reluctant to expose itself to the risk of its mediation efforts going wrong, which could mean two things. One, the conflict worsens and China gets blamed, which bad for China's international image, or 
the side that China didn't particularly like ends up winning in the conflict and China ends up on the wrong side, which again, is not something that Beijing wants to assume. So yes, there's a lot of rhetoric about China wanting a peaceful resolution to the conflict and now they'll come up with this plan. But I am very, very skeptical that Beijing will get directly involved and try to mediate. Because of that, and also because I don't think all the other parties would accept Beijing as an as an honest mediator. And just on top of that, this is not the right time to strike a peace deal now, because the Ukrainians are fully mobilized. The society is all in favor of reclaiming the lands that they've lost. Nobody knows what the, the battlegrounds will bring in the, the following months, but Nobody in the Ukrainian elite, including Zelensky, has any legitimacy given from the society to end this war now. Nobody wants this. And I mean, I think that's that's an absolutely fundamental point, right? You can't mediate in the conflict and bring parties to the table if the parties don't want to go to the table at that particular point. But Beijing, I mean, they're coming up with this idea, potentially in coordination with Moscow. I think that's likely definitely not in coordination with Kiev. So this is an external actor trying to, what, impose a peace process when the actual involved parties don't want to. It's it's denying Ukraine's agency, effectively, which is something that Beijing has done repeatedly ever since the, the beginning of the, of the war and of the invasion 12 months ago, speaking very much about how This is all about the U.S. and NATO on one side versus Russia on the other, ignoring Ukraine's agency as an actor and a party to this conflict. And and, and this is, to my mind, a bit similar. What kind of impact has the war in Ukraine have on the international landscape with regards to China? Do you think it has made it more difficult or more easy to achieve its own aims internationally? I think the, the thing that the last year has brought, uh, this is not a complete process, but I think we're heading into a direction where, once again, those two big theaters of international conflict, namely Europe and the Indo-Pacific, are increasingly linked through numerous channels, one of them being the China-Russia relationship and the things we just talked about and how interrelated these things are. But also, very notably, the increasing coordination cooperation between uh, Europe, US, and uh, parts of the Indo-Pacific, with India probably being the more problematic part of the concept, but at least Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, them joining the NATO summit, China going nuts about this happening, comparing NATO to AUKUS and Quad and in a fear of the US-led alliance system in the Pacific turning into a collective defense um, structure, uh, the support, and this is an important moment, the support that the, the this part of the Indo-Pacific gave to Ukraine and is giving to Ukraine and also to Europe makes it much more interrelated And uh, this kind of sets the stage for China to, uh, to to deal with both sides here. And this is negative from their side, I think. This emerging blocks, however you call it, these are not 
definite blocks. These are just some, you know, division lines that are becoming much more present and visible. But then on the other hand, you have the global south direction where China's position, I think, is better than it was in a way of leveraging this anti-American narratives and, uh, you know, uh, increasing their, their diplomatic posture. Of course, having in mind a number of problems they had in the global south with the finances and so on. I agree that I think the one positive consequence, perhaps, for, for China has been its, its, its ability to leverage not just the war in Ukraine, but also the food and energy crisis that followed around the world as like rhetorical ammunition against the West across the global South. And that's a message that resonates. And, and it's a narrative of China presenting itself as a very different type of global power to the US or, or to Europe that again, I think it's, it's helping. It's helping China's image across the, the global south, and it is helping Beijing make progress in, in building that sort of alternative coalition of countries that it's been trying to, to put together. So that's the positive side. But fundamentally, I think Beijing's position on, on the war against Ukraine has worsened China's geopolitical environment. There's Absolutely, the Indo-Pacific side of things that Yakub was referring to, but this has also, of course, worsened ties with the U.S. even further. It has really brought into perspective for Europe and for European countries some of the potential security challenges that we may face involving China going forward. I mean, Beijing may not like it, but the reality is that the parallels between Ukraine and Taiwan are being drawn. The discussions are ongoing in Europe about what sort of preparation we may need to do now in case we end up facing a Taiwan conflict a few years down the line. Uh, what do we need to do now in terms of achieving some sort of unity in position, in terms of putting ourselves in a position in which we would be able to even think about imposing sanctions on, on China. So this conversation has really kicked off in Europe. Plus, all of this happened at a time when China's image in Europe among the European public was already going down quite rapidly. After the COVID-19 pandemic, after the crackdown on Hong Kong, after revelations about the camps in, in Xinjiang, and then this came. Uh, on a topic that is seen, on an issue that is seen as very existential to Europeans. So I think China's public image across the general public in Europe and also among governments has taken a hit. And sure, you see it at the Munich, for example, at the Munich Security Conference when Wang Yi was there. You see what, what he was trying to do. He was trying to simultaneously stand by Russia attack the U.S. and try to appeal to European leaders and try to get them to distance themselves from the U.S. and calling on them to join up forces with China to pursue peace in Ukraine. 
but that doesn't work anymore. The, the geopolitical environment has changed very drastically. Europeans are mostly just no longer willing to play that game. I think this was Wang Yi misreading the room in Europe. One additional remark there on the how the I, I do agree that the geopolitical situation deteriorates for them. And uh, but I'm I'm wondering why they're still continuing to do things that kind of brought about this change. I mean, there was a, a moment in March last year when everybody was like, oh, my God, Putin must have tricked Xi Jinping into doing this. It's fundamentally not in China's interest to support Russia. It will, you know, burn all the bridges. How, and, and everybody was waiting for China to kind of distance itself from Russia. And it, I think it could. There was a moment when it could. But they didn't. They just doubled down on supporting Russia so with all the caveats we talked about. But they're still going this direction. And this is, I, I constantly ask myself this question, I mean, why are they doing this? Why they're kind of exacerbating this negative trends of, of, of deteriorating relationship with the, let's say, global north or the west? And uh, one of the explanations for me is that maybe they're just convinced that it's not going to fly anyways. Maybe you can postpone it. Maybe you can kind of manipulate Europeans and trick them into something. But the long-term trend is negative anyways. They won't strike any type of deal with the US. The conflict is structural. It's all about the pace, not about the direction. You can change it. Europe is falling apart, maybe in their minds, kind of uh, an American puppet that they have no le leverage over so they cannot control. So why not using Russia as an instrument in their own policies? I mean, another view on sort of the same argument as an explanation for this is that the Chinese leadership may have just decided or settled on the fact that its relationship with the U.S. is not going to improve, period. That's where we are. It's a protracted conflict, and there's no way to resolve that at this point. So why would China even try to engage with the U.S. and Europe very much being seen as a potential ally for China if they can be pulled away from the U.S., which is why I think they are still trying over the past few months. But I think even Chinese hopes of, of pulling Europe away from the U.S. are diminishing. Uh, so that that sort of environment of geopolitical competition for me is, I agree, one of the only explanations I can see as likely um, to be able to explain why Beijing has chosen to stand by Russia throughout these past 12 months. Well, um, thank you both very much for your time and your insight. We're going to look out for the Chinese peace plan. But until then, Jakob, Helena, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Johannes. Bye bye. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makata Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org. <laughs>